Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast for Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Christine Benz discusses how much you should have in cash and then shares her tips for stock exposure. Then, Russ Kennel and Susan Jabinski talk wide-mode funds. And finally, Dan Kemp fills us in on the crisis between Russia and Ukraine. Let's get started. Here is Christine Benz for Morningstar, Inc. The next step in the process is to evaluate the adequacy of liquid reserves, so of your cash assets. The baseline for people who are working is three to six months worth of assets set aside in liquid reserves. Uh, I think sometimes people are put off by how high those numbers seem, that that seems like a lot of cash. And I think the issue is that you really want to think about how much you could get by on in a pinch rather than have, have rather than thinking about how much you're spending today while you're employed. The idea is that you're building yourself an emergency cushion of the expenses that would be absolutely essential if for whatever reason you were not able to, to earn an income or if you were to become disabled. Uh, the idea is that you're building yourself an emergency buffer. For people who are retired, I like the idea of holding one to two years of living expenses in cash investments. If you wanted to run with a lower cushion, you could potentially take that down to six months worth of living expenses. But um, I think you would want to probably be a little closer to the one to two years worth of living expenses. a couple things to think about with respect to liquid reserves. One is that if you've gone through this x-ray process, you'll probably see that your cash weighting is higher than you thought it was. And, And that's especially true if you have active mutual funds in your portfolio. You don't want to take those residual cash balances into account when tallying up your emergency cushion. And the key reason is that you can't call your mutual fund and say, oh, equity fund, I would just like to pull out my cash holdings. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So you'd want to look at the amount that you have that's truly liquid. And then I think even though cash yields are very, very low today, it's also worthwhile just shopping around to make sure that you're getting the highest yield that you possibly can. And specifically, I think you want to be careful about some of the notoriously low-yielding cash accounts that are available, brokerage sweep accounts, for example. Even though they might be convenient, uh, they're typically very low-yielding. So if you are a little bit thoughtful and willing to do a little bit of homework, you can probably pick up a higher yield on your cash securities. One thing that often comes up for retirees who want to maintain that cash cushion on an ongoing basis is where to go for that cash, how to replenish that bucket one or those cash reserves as they become depleted. So if you're spending from that cash bucket on an ongoing basis, how to top it back up. And I think that there are a couple of ways to go about doing that. One is to simply take any organically generated income distributions, whether from your bond holdings or from your dividend paying equities, and have those sent over into your cash account. That way your cash account is kind of topping itself up on an ongoing basis. So even if you're not reaching for income, looking for for income rich stocks and bonds, you can still 
enjoy a little bit of income coming in the door through uh, those income-producing securities. And then if you need additional cash reserves, and many investors certainly will because income is really low today, you can then use rebalancing annually to help top up the cash reserve. So you would pull from the very appreciated portions of your portfolio and use them to top up your cash holdings. For investors who are looking back on 2021, which was generally another great year for the stock market, pulling from appreciated U.S. equity holdings seems like a really logical place to start if you need to rebalance and you need to top up your cash holdings. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Christine Benz reviews your portfolio's equity exposures. The next step in the process is to assess your equity exposures. So we've talked about some of the tailwinds that U.S. large growth stocks have had. If you look at your portfolio style box exposure and you've been hands off with your portfolio, if you haven't been periodically stripping back U.S. growth stocks, it's a good bet that your portfolio is skewing toward U.S. versus foreign. It's skewing toward growth versus value. And so you may need to do a little bit of repositioning to help restore balance. It may be that you have as an ongoing bias, uh, a bias toward U.S. large cap growth stocks, that that's your choice. But it's just important to be conscious of whatever biases you have in your portfolio. If you're seeking balance, if you're seeking, uh, if you're anticipating reversion to the mean, anticipating that uh, growth stocks may seed ground to value and that U.S. stocks may seed ground to non-U.S. over the next decade, doing a little bit of repositioning there uh, probably makes sense. So on this slide, I've uh, got an indication of the extent to which U.S. stocks have, uh, U.S. growth stocks have outperformed value. They've nearly doubled uh, value over the past uh, five years. U.S. stocks relative to non-U.S. stocks have also um, trumped non-U.S. stocks. So those are areas to think about doing some repositioning, especially if you're, if you're kind of looking forward as opposed to using the rearview mirror to drive the car. Thinking in terms of your portfolio's fixed income exposures, the Fed's planned interest rate hike has certainly put pressure on bond prices that started in late 2021, and that has certainly persisted into the early innings of 2022. We've seen some losses on bond funds just recently. So for the year to date, we've seen the biggest losses in terms of long-term bonds. They tend to be the most interest rate sensitive. We've also seen some weakness in emerging markets bonds recently, where they have fallen back uh, just as much as long-term bonds. So. Um, I think the the thing to remember is that even though the Fed has not taken action to lift interest rates uh, yet in 2022, that investors in the bond market are often preemptive. So the so bond prices 
tend to factor in the market action. So we've seen bond prices take a little bit of a hit. I think it's important to review your portfolio's interest rate sensitivity. Most investors don't own long-term bonds as a portion of their portfolios, but it is important to understand the price effects that your portfolio might encounter uh, during a period of rising interest rates. So I often like to point investors to what I call a duration stress test. And to do this, you don't need to be a bond market geek, but you need to find a couple of data points about the funds in your portfolio. So you'd find the duration of a bond fund in your portfolio, and you can find that on the portfolio tab of Morningstar.com. Find duration, and then also find a statistic called SEC yield, which you'll be able to find for ETFs, exchange-traded funds on Morningstar.com. For mutual funds, you'd want to look on your fund company's website website for SEC yield. And the SEC yield is just a current snapshot of the fund's yield. And so you're taking those two numbers and you're subtracting that yield from the duration. And the duration is a measure of interest rate sensitivity. And the amount that you're left over with is the amount that you might expect to see that bond fund lose in a one-year period in which interest rates jumped up by one percentage point. So that's a big jump up in terms of interest rates. But run your portfolio holdings through that sort of stress test. So if you have a long-term bond in your portfolio, long-term bond fund in your portfolio, you'll see a duration of uh, roughly 18 years today, certainly a, a high double-digit duration today, and you probably see a yield in the neighborhood of 2% today. So running through that little bit of math, you'll see that that's a fairly significant loss in that one-year period in which we would see a sizable interest rate jump of one percentage point. Most investors don't own long-term bonds specifically for this reason, for their potential volatility. Most investors own shorter-term and intermediate-term bonds, which tend to be much less interest rate sensitive. So looking at intermediate-term bond funds today, we see durations oftentimes in the neighborhood of six or seven years. Yields are pretty low, so yields don't provide too much of a cushion. But nonetheless, that leaves you with, I think, a little bit of comfort in terms of thinking about, well, how vulnerable are my fixed-income holdings? in a potentially catastrophic interest rate increase. It's probably something that you could live with. Um, but nonetheless, run your holdings through this stress test. This will tend to be most useful if you have high-quality bond funds in your portfolio. It'll be less instructive if you have lower-quality bonds. While you're looking at your portfolio's fixed income exposures, it's also worthwhile to evaluate the role of lower quality bonds. I mentioned that lower quality bonds had been pretty resilient during this recent market sell-off. The issue to keep in mind is just how these bonds tend to perform in varying market environments. So one thing we know when we look at the data is that lower quality bonds are much more correlated to stocks than they are to 
high quality bonds. And so I think that can, that can help you figure out how to use them in your portfolio. I like them as a portion of the equity exposure in a portfolio rather than thinking about them as higher yielding alternatives to high quality bonds. High quality bonds will tend to deliver ballast for your portfolio, so they're what you want to hold if you want a portion of your portfolio that will potentially gain a little bit when stocks go down, low quality bonds will not do that for you. They will typically move in sympathy with the equity market, even though they might not lose as much as stocks in market sell-off, they will tend to behave in sympathy with equities, which is one reason why I like investors thinking about them as part of their their long-term portion of their portfolio. If you're a bucket investor, for example, you'd think about holding them in bucket three in that long-term piece. Next, here are Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. and Russ Kinnell from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. At Morningstar, we're fans of companies that have wide economic moats. Such high-quality firms have competitive advantages that allow them to effectively fight off competitors. Several mutual funds keep a large portion of their assets in wide moat stocks. Here today to share some of his favorite wide moat funds is Russ Kinnell. Russ is Morningstar's Director of Manager Research and Editor of Morningstar Fund Investor. Hi, Russ. Nice to see you today. Glad to be here. Now, Morningstar's stock analysts spend a lot of time talking about economic moats. So let's sort of start there, talking in general terms about what makes a wide moat company and why that's attractive. Yeah, so this is a a concept uh, popularized by Warren Buffett and borrowed with love by us. Uh, The the basic concept is uh, companies that are uh, hard to compete with because they have big competitive advantages, they're established, uh, and and therefore hard to compete with. And that gives them a great uh, defensive quality because it's it's hard for to to make a company like that uh, go to zero or, or, or really take away their business. So that could be a thing like a name brand, like a Procter & Gamble or a Coca-Cola, very hard to get them off the grocery store shelves. It could be something like entrenched software, like a Microsoft, or it could be something like both, like a Apple or Facebook. It, you know, If you have a better product than Apple or Microsoft, uh, it still doesn't mean you're going to actually get all of their business because there's so much high cost to switching over, uh, whether it's for an individual, like say who wants to go from Facebook to something else, a business, imagine telling an IT person, get rid of all your Microsoft. Uh, so so uh, those make it for very big competitive advantages. Uh, and we see that those are the sort of companies that endure. So we're going to talk today about a handful of funds that own a lot of wide moat stocks specifically. So is, is it intentional on the part of these funds in general to own wide, more, wide moat stocks? Or is it more of just a byproduct of their, of their overall strategies? It's very intentional. They might call it quality rather than wide moats, but it's, it's very much a, a part of their process. They're looking for companies that uh, have these really strong characteristics uh, because they are uh, good long-term investments. It's no accident that most of these funds have very low turnover because moats endure. Uh, uh, Procter and Gamble has, uh, you know, ha- had those advantages for a long time, as have you know, some of these other companies. So uh, you can find a good company like this and uh, hold on for a long time. So let's dig into some of the funds. Um, the first one is BNY Mellon Appreciation. Uh, this fund lands in Morningstar's 
large cap blend category. Um, and the fund has a little bit more of a growth tinged portfolio of about 50 names. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, this uh, is a fund that was formerly named Dreyfus Appreciation, uh, but it's sub-advised uh, by Faya Seraphim, a, a well-known firm out of, out of Houston. Uh, and they're very much uh, focused on finding very high quality names that they can hold on for a very long time, but they are valuation aware, at least relative to some of the other uh, moat oriented funds. Uh, so uh, they end up in large blend. They even will hold a little bit of energy, uh, but again, it's uh, very well established brands uh, and, and a very patient approach uh, that, that has really worked well over time. And it's a pretty stable firm as well. So you kind of have stability working on a couple of levels there. The next fund is Jensen Quality Growth. This one also lands in the large blend category. And, you know, based on the latest portfolio, it seems like it has a little bit better dispersion or balance between value and growth. Um, but it's a li little bit more concentrated, holds about 30 stocks, right? That's right. Uh, this is a really nice uh, quality fund. I own it. Um, it's, it's, again, very much focused on uh, quality names. But, you know, you mentioned the, the concentration and Concentration in quality stocks to me is is much lower risk than say concentration in high beta names. You know, they're, they're, if if say you've got uh, really high risk stocks, you know, whether it's a a gold miner or a super fast growing company, you know that that can make for a very risky portfolio. But when you're talking about uh, wide moat names, again, they endure. So I think it's a pretty reasonable approach to just focus on the very best names you can find. So, you know, Jensen is another one that has been a very consistent performer. You know, if you look at their record, generally when there's a recession, they do quite well. Um, in uh, markets like the downturn we saw uh, just recently, uh, these wide moat funds don't do as well because wide moat, in, this, in a case like this, it's more of a, a valuation correction and moats don't help you so much there, but they're more of a, uh, recession defense. And then the last fund that lands in that large blend category for Morningstar is Vanguard Dividend Growth. Um, it has more of that true sort of blended approach to portfolio building and also has a dividend focus. That's right. Uh, dividend growth is uh, uh, another way to, to get at wide moat stocks because to find a dividend growing name, you need a strong balance sheet, but also the potential uh, to grow uh, that that dividend and and that kind of leads you naturally to these kind of wide moat names that are well established have big robust uh, balance sheets uh, lots of cash but also the the ability to grow and so uh, maybe technically they're not saying moats but uh, dividend growth gets you to the same place and it still has those really nice defensive characteristics that I think is gives you a lot of appeal that. Uh, inequities, obviously there's a lot of risk. These have less risk in general because of that, whether it's dividend growth or wide moat, you just sort of ending up with uh, companies with a lot of good defenses. And now we're gonna talk about a couple funds that land in our large growth uh, category. The first being um, Poland growth. Um, and this one's really quite concentrated. This only owns about two dozen stocks, right? That's right. So it's our most concentrated fund. Again, I don't worry about it too much. You know, we, we rate it silver because we, we think it can manage that concentration. Uh, they place maybe a greater emphasis uh, on uh, the ability to grow, and that 
gets them in the growth box, but they also care about, uh, they call it like fortress balance sheets. So, you know, very, uh, you know, huge cash stakes, uh, which of course means could mean a tech company or a, 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 a brand name company. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, this is a really nice uh, growth strategy. Again, when you have wide moats, it's okay to concentrate, I think. So, Russ, our last pick today, also in that large growth category, is actually undergoing a name change. So let's talk a little bit about that first. Um, at the time of this taping, the fund is actually called Lotus U.S. Large Cap Growth. Tell us about the name change and, and why it's happening. Yeah, it's uh, Schwab Select Large Cap Growth is, is the new name. It's, it's not really changing. Uh, it's just a, a rebranding. Lotus has always been Schwab's uh, brand name for uh, actively managed funds. So they're just renaming it. It's an accurate name. It is a large cap growth fund. Uh, what we like is Lawrence Kemp uh, is a very seasoned investor who's uh, very much a, a, a focused growth investor. Um, it's, it's a little more aggressive than some of the other ones we've named. So maybe not quite as much uh, defensive characteristics, uh, but very much focused on good wide moat names with, with good growth characteristics. I think a pretty attractive large growth option out there. And then lastly, Russ, you know, I, I, I took a look at the year-to-date performance of, of these five funds. And um, with the exception of Vanguard Dividend Growth, the other four are landing in the bottom half of their respective categories this year, which may strike some investors as odd um, because they might be thinking in terms of, you know, wide moat stocks, defensive plays, you know, why aren't these funds doing better in a choppy market. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a great illustration of the ways this, they provide defense and don't. Uh, so this latest correction is uh, mostly kind of growth names who had very high valuations getting uh, cut. And, uh, you know, uh, price risk uh, is not a thing that quality really protects you from. It protects you from recessions because in recessions, these kind of companies look great because uh, say in the financial crisis in 08, they didn't need to, they weren't dependent upon banks because they have robust uh, cash uh, balances, uh, but also they have brand names that endure uh, through the, and, and, and hold up very well often. You know, so if you think about people still buy uh, Procter & Gamble or Microsoft or whatever, you know, even in a downturn. So uh, economic recessions, these are great defense uh, but uh, they're not great defense about against all types of sell-offs. Well, Russ, thank you for your time today and for doing this deep dive into some of these wide moat funds. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Lastly, here is Ollie Smith from Morningstar UK and Dan Kem from Morningstar Investment Management. As Western governments prepare to impose and expand sanctions against a newly belligerent Russia, I'm here to ask Morningstar Investment Management's global CIO, Dan Kemp, what the knock-on effects are for markets and indeed investors at home. So, Dan, thanks for joining us. Um, Sombre news emerging from the Ukraine. Um, may I just start off with the big picture? How have markets reacted broadly to Putin's decision here? 
Well, hello, Ollie, and you're absolutely right. Uh, big news uh, for, for the world today. And of course, that's, that's affecting markets as well. And as we look back over what's happened already today, the first thing to say is that it's been really noisy in markets. So overnight, we had sharp falls in Asian equity markets. Uh, the UK market opened sharply down, as did the rest of Europe. And, and more recently, uh, through the course this morning, we've seen some recovery there. Uh, US uh, government bonds, which are typically a safe haven in times like this, uh, the, the price has risen there. And of course, uh, energy prices, oil prices particularly, have, have risen. And so that's all understandable and, and all quite normal. I think the lesson of today as ever is not to get drawn in as investors to these short-term changes. So people uh, who felt that the markets were falling and that they should sell first thing this morning uh, would have been uh, rapidly licking their wounds as they saw a recovery markets. Equally, we may see a further leg down. Uh, it is the type of noisy market that draws people in uh, and whipsaws people into making bad decisions. So a very dangerous time for investors. Just sticking with commodities for a second and oil and gas in particular, um, the price of oil has risen. So what is the precise relationship between a situation like this and commodity prices? Ollie, we have to think about it on a couple of different levels. At the very surface level, uh, then we see commodity prices rise uh, because uh, Russia is a large supplier of energy, particularly oil and gas, into Europe. And so when we see these geopolitical tensions, of course, people become concerned about supply and, and therefore that leads to a a price response. But if we dig below that level, of course, it becomes much more complicated. As you said, we have to keep an eye on what OPEC is doing, uh, what supply is doing in the US as well, and also the fact that prices have risen very dramatically over the last 18 months following the trough, uh, the height of the, the COVID crisis. And so people should never extrapolate future price movements uh, from uh, the either past movements or from these geopolitical events, because it's so so easy uh, to get that wrong and to miss a change in sentiment in the market. So although it's not a surprise that prices have risen, don't assume that that will carry on regardless of what Russia does over the next uh, few days and weeks. Sure. And just finally, in terms of fund management groups, and I suppose your peers in the asset management world, it seems to me at the moment that nobody's really making any assumptions about what will happen next, um, even though Putin has clearly signalled his intent. Do you personally feel certain about an outcome either way here? That um, Do you have a view on it? Uh, Ollie, you can never be certain about the outcome. Uh, this is one of the great challenges of all investment, that as you as you look ahead, the future is uncertain. Uh, we believe that there may be a, uh, a future that we can uncover through enough analysis, but that's simply not the case. We always have to think about the future as a range of uh, probabilities. And so as we talk about other fund managers who haven't uh, reacted yet, then that's probably a good thing. Uh, thinking about these, this range of, of outcomes, they're thinking hopefully longer term uh, beyond uh, these latest market wobbles and really into the deep value uh, that we're seeing in, in markets and trying to understand what the fundamental drivers of returns are. So, so no, you can't ever uh, predict the future, particularly over the short term, particularly when it comes to uh, politics and, uh, and energy and, and all that we're seeing around that noise at the moment. But what you can do is look 
at individual companies, look at asset classes, uh, look a long way into the future and what the expected returns are from the fundamental returns of these businesses uh, when, you're, when you're given that longer timescale. So always focus on the long term. Don't get distracted by the market noise and don't make quick decisions that you may live to regret later on. Absolutely. Behavioural lesson for everyone. Um, for more information and analysis of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, check out Morningstar.co.uk. Until next time, thanks to Dan Kemp. I've been Ollie Smith for Morningstar. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.